Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Mikhail Pritzker. Um, I'm just going to call him Misha. That's how he goes as. Uh, hi, Misha. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you. And uh, Misha originally is from Moscow, but he lived in Israel for many years. And uh, now he lives in uh, Miami area. And uh, he's been an, he's an investor with us, and he uh, joined uh, Tempo team as director of asset management and underwriting in early part of uh, 2023. He holds um, an MBA from Chicago uh, Booth School, and uh, he also has CCIM. But before we jump into the business, uh, tell us a little bit about your family. You have a lovely wife, a couple of kids. Just tell us a little bit about that. Sure, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honor working with you. Um, so I'm 43 years old and I have um, three kids. I have a daughter. She's 21. I have a son. He's four years old and I have a daughter. She's two years old. Actually, my son is almost five and daughter almost three, but still they're formally four and two yet. Uh, we, live in, uh, we lived in Israel for a while. Yes, Mike, you're right. Um, originally, we're from Moscow, Jewish family that moved to, around the world, and now we settled here in Miami area in Boca Raton. So here in Boca, we have a kind of joke when uh, you know the Jews were looking for a promised land, and they ended up in Boca. So, <laughs> yeah, so please welcome. Thank, um, thank you. So, and yeah, I got my MBA designation from University of Chicago Booth School of Business in 2020, right at the time when COVID hit the planet. Uh, and then I got my CCIM designation somewhere in 2021, I think. And I'm proud to be the part of that community that provides us with a lot of valuable knowledge and resources. Um, and I'm happy to work with uh, Tempe family for almost a year as of now. And i um, ready to talk about everything we need to talk today, Mike. Yeah, thank you, Misha. I appreciate that. And we're recording this up ep- this episode during the uh, very challenging time in Israel with a brutal attack from Hamas. So our uh, thoughts and prayers with all the people of Israel. We stand with Israel now and always. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about um, real estate and the changing world of real estate uh, investments uh, with what has transpired over the last uh, year and a half with interest rates haven't risen so much. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges of existing uh, investments, uh, portfolios. Um, what's the best practices in portfolio management? And then we can jump into new deals underwriting. How do we get into great new opportunities? What has changed from the underwriting perspective? So let's cover these two topics. So let's start uh, with the best practices uh, today in the portfolio and asset management um you uh work with multiple folks uh on our team and and, and and external folks to lead that area so what has changed what's the biggest um challenge now uh in the area of portfolio and asset management um you know what we had like a very blessed time you know before covid hit the planet the like when when the 2008 crisis like 
passed a little bit and 2014, everything started to catch up. Um, the multifamily storage retail offices were all like behaving pretty well. And sponsors used to have a huge margin of errors. Yeah, they they could effort like okay, changing the contractors in the middle of you know renovation process, or changing the broker, or leasing agent, or property management. Everything took a lot of time. But since the markets were growing and growing and growing, the market you know was forgiving us for everything pretty much. And you know that caused some bad habits in between sponsors, and sometimes I can see that also in between the underwriting teams that um, that are um, in charge with the underwriting process and dealing with sponsors. So everything started to be looking like very easy, I would say. Now the times are getting hard. Now you see that the margins of errors are very, very tiny. If the sponsors are not behaving within the property management, or you see that the contractors are not delivering their innovation pace in time, or you see that the estimation of your occupancy is not there or it's too aggressive or if you see that the rental increase because of the renovation in multifamily business i mean is too high if anything of that is not working you're screwed nothing is going to work out for you especially if you multiply it to the abnormal interest rates that we have right now in the market and a lot of people were hoping to get the refinance and they use the previous metrics to get the, re- the whole amount of refinance but now when they're go into the bank and show them the NOI and, you know, multiply it and all those mistakes and mismanagement. And they just cannot borrow as much as they need. And that means that, um, I mean, especially when the rates are so high, meaning that they just have to go on the capital calls for under default. And that's, that's what actually bothers us super, super, super much. So starting that time, we significantly increased, speaking about the best practices, um, we shifted from quarterly market, quarterly reviews with our, with our sponsors to basically monthly or sometimes even weekly, bi-weekly reports. So we track on what's going on in our projects, very hands-on. We have boots on the ground right now. We visit our projects pretty much like every other month to see what's going on. Because the practice show that yet we build our relationship with our sponsors based on a full trust and commitment. It's not about them being you know, wrong. It's just about the environment that changed and we're not getting used to it like this. And they're not getting used to it like this. So we need to help them in a way because the financial side of that is the most sensitive side, you know? Uh, we put a lot of risk in there. We put our investors' money in those projects. So we gotta be hands-on. So we go there, we talk to the leasing agents. We talk to people on the streets who are the, um, the clients of those buildings. We do way deeper demographic analysis right now, trying to estimate the demand side. We look at uh, the lead funnel. How are they performing on a monthly basis? We pay a lot of attention to Google and and other application reviews that people can rely on when they choose the property where they can lead. Again, I'm speaking in general about the multifamily stuff right now since it's the main part of our portfolio. Yeah, so that's that's probably it. So we have hands-on. We do the reporting more often right now, like bi-weekly, monthly, and of course, quarterly as well. We started to create more transparent system for our investors so our investors could be aware of what's going on. Would it be good news? Would it be like, you know, <laughs> medium rare news or or well done news or, or poor news? Yeah, so we want them to be aware of that. So we do the town halls. 
we talk to people in a more transparent way than ever before. And um, we try to keep our words. Um, that's that, that's probably the big picture, Mike. Yeah, Misha, I appreciate that overview. Uh, everything you said makes sense. Uh, it's just a, you know, to summarize, it's, it's focused on uh, operation, making sure that the execution is strong. And uh, the big difference, some folks have executed really well in the past and they continue to execute well now. And some folks, as you said, we're executing at the old way of doing things, going to the property once every three months, every six six months, and the properties were just kind of chugging along and everything was fine. And now it's gotten a whole lot harder on the operating side. And on the financial side, things gotten way, way harder because the interest rates have shot up. And um, so let, let, let's, let's dissect this a little bit more. So what happens when the value-add projects, when the they borrow with uh, floating rate interest, uh, which has been the norm. It, it's not something that folks have, have been stupid and just took the variable rate interest rates or floating rate uh, loans just because um, they have nothing better to do. This was kind of the, the lay of the land. This was the norm. Fixed rate debt was available for stabilized property projects. And most of the value adds have been variable. So how much pressure is this putting on these projects and, and uh, what can we do about it? What are the solutions? Well, um, I want to emphasize one thing before I jump into that, that actually the good sponsors who are really taking well care of their projects, normally we see that as a very well vertically integrated systems that they have. And I'm going to build on that, explaining, uh, answering your questions. What I mean by that is that um, the sponsors are having a lot of control right now in operations. That they, that, that's, that's why they succeed in this environment. The people who succeed have a lot of vertical control. They have contractors in, in, in their structure. They have uh, property management in their structure, leasing agents. They have like a, maybe some uh, procurement divisions that bought a lot of you know, materials for their add value projects in advance. That's why they manage their costs. They manage their you know, um, operations fairly tight. And what happens when the floating rate, I mean, you just put on the top of the software uh, the, the rates that we have right now, and uh, that service that they, they, seem, they want it to be is going to be way higher, meaning that especially considering that the NOI is not as high as it expected to be, uh, they cannot borrow as much as they wanted, and they cannot refinance. So the system is kind of pushing them from both ends. From one hand, their real performance metrics are not there. From the other hand, they cannot borrow as much as they wanted. And the uh, rate is just simply going high and high and high, and they don't have enough of their operation NOI to cover the debt. So the other have to go through some capital calls and you know achieve more, uh, attract more financing, or they have to some, somehow restructure the, 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 the debt splitting in, in a way. So... The people are looking for refinancing here and there. They're going for some, you know, shark money loans, but it doesn't help them that much because the revenue side is struggling. So it's like a scissors in a football. So the, the, you can't do much in here. Yeah. So people are going to re renegotiate with the bank. We see that, for example, like in our uh, Little Rock project, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, when, 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 when there is a problem, the only thing you do is you knock bank's door and you try to negotiate somehow with them. Hey, guys. Give them a little more time, please, because you don't want to do foreclosure. It's going to be a pain in the butt for you. You need to take care about the asset. 
So the banks are not super favorable in this case. So we we don't see that much of this type of default right now. But I think uh, and I sincerely believe that during 2024, we're going to see way more uh, vulnerable projects in the market that could be could be used as a as an advantage to some people. But in general, the market is suffering right now. Yeah, thanks for for, for those thoughts. Um, what I think what you're referring to is is kind of known as the maturities cliff. Uh, that's one of the terms used. There are other terms where the rate cap expirations hits those projects that borrowed in 22 on a two-year rate cap. And uh, yeah, the interest rates provide a lot of pressure. Um, simply inability to refinance or making it much more difficult to refinance. And recently we've seen not only short-term rates having gone up, but also long-term rates. And the refi is really, really connected to the long-term rates. Uh, although uh, this more and more evidence that the Fed is likely done raising interest rates at this point on the short uh on the Fed funds rate that that controls the short end of the yield curve but on the long end of the yield curve the 10-year treasury is what controls mortgage rates and it has it has gone up uh in fairly significantly uh in the near past so that's creating even more pressure on the refinancings um as there's not enough debt service coverage uh, to be able to uh, borrow at any LTV that is meaningful. It's the biggest issue. People borrowed at 75% LTV on these bridge loans, and now they need to refinance, and the banks are only giving them 50, 55, 60%. It's gotten a whole lot yeah. tougher. Yeah. So, yeah. so what, what do you think is the solution? And I, I don't know there is an easy solution. It's almost like we have to persevere until rates cycle back down. This is kind of the general uh, thought process, and I've spoken with a number of experts in the industry, that you got to keep fighting the operating battles, do the best you can on the operating front, and then uh, um, do capital calls or whatever has to be due to survive, have these projects survive until the interest rates cycle back down. And the interest rates, um, uh, one point on the interest rates that I wanted to mention, and let me know your thoughts. Some folks are concerned that the interest rates can climb further. I, I think we are at the peak at this point of time, although I don't have a crystal ball. My guess is good as anybody. Short-term rates are definitely at the peak. Uh, if Fed does another quarter or not, is less relevant. We are either completely at the peak or if it's another quarter, it, that's not a you know, gigantic material impact. And then on the long-term rates, um, the uh, the thought process here is that there's certainly certain forces that's forcing the rates on the long-term bond having gone up but in general, um, these uh, much higher interest rates are, are are not here to stay, at least in my view. Now, we're not going back to reserve policy, zero interest rate policy. But once the inflation comes back down to 2 to 3%, long-term interest rates need to come down as well. So that's kind of the, the thought process. So what do you think? I'm just, I'm just curious, your, your, your thoughts on the subject. Uh, well, first of all, you know, in that expectation, of kind of recession in people's mind. Everybody talking about the recession, 2024 is still going to hit us and so on. The interest rates are serving as a very bad service, of course, and that puts a lot of pressure. But you know what gives me a little hope? We're not in an environment where emotionally or psychologically we feel the reaction to recession. Because if the real stuff starts to happen, the interest rate would have been out five or four or three, everything just going to start falling. And thanks God we're not there yet. I mean, 
I'm glad that people are holding the characters, the banks and everybody with their judgments that it's not going to happen. And that's what I think we should really be careful with in our expectations. Because a lot of people talk, they speculate about it. They know what's going to be. Nobody knows what's going to be at the end of the day. Uh, we just have to be very careful looking at what's going to be in the future. So let me start with question number one. What can we do to mitigate it, to mitigate the situation? Well, first of all, we are investors. We're not the managers of those uh, syndications or uh, multifamily projects or value project, whatever. As an investor, as I think for us, it's important to be sober. And sometimes it's better not to invest and wait a little bit versus investing into something that is dangerous. So we are conservative here in a way because we're responsible as enough for people's money. So we better wait a little bit and look for um, strong opportunities that might pop up in this market and they will definitely come versus um, just doing nothing. We can, we can just stay a little bit out of that. We can wait a little bit. Yeah, we can wait six months. We can wait eight months. We can, we can look what's going on and take care of an existing projects. From, from our egoistic perspective, I'd say, we got to be just careful and not to take any opportunistic stuff on board just because we think, hey, it's a good time. Let's grab everything that is you know, laying down. We got to be still careful because they're laying down for a reason. The second thing uh, about the interest rates and what's going to be uh, you know, the the overall picture about the interest rate, about jobs, about uh, net export, and about the overall structure of the GDP, I'm not sure that it helped that much overall to the inflation because, um, the, of course, it slowed down the, 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 cons the consumption market, but still we see a lot of governmental spending since we still see a lot of uh, export problems. So kind of if you look at this GDP equation, just solving it with uh, purely raising the interest rate up doesn't help fast and doesn't help much because we all know that the overall horizon that the interest rates are affecting is like about five years. So we're going to see a lot of happening during the next five years that starts now because people are still taking money and we're going to see what's going on. But uh, there is a political kind of component to that, the component of our external relationship with our suppliers in different countries like China to manage the export part of this equation. We got to be very careful with our governmental spendings because that kind of, you know, inflows the market with money and with uh, a lot of um, possibilities that basically, you know, pump the inflation up and put the upward pressure on these numbers. So I just think that I believe that, you know, if, if the Fed would just continue raising it, that would be, kind of the, the curve of that effect will go like that. So you can raise it as much as you want, but without changing all other components, it wouldn't affect you, you know, that much. That's why they think, I think psychologically going to stop around where they are right now. Maybe like a little pause, maybe with one more increase, just a tiny one. But what's going to happen afterwards, I am not sure because I don't see that much of an effect. You know, let me give you a simple example. Meat in Costco. If you go and purchase a pure beef, you know, I, I like pulled up my bill for, I think, last October. A piece of beef that I normally buy to cook some borscht was $32. Suddenly, months ago, it happened to be 50 And everything is going like that. I would, my average purchase basket in Costco was about $250 like per batch, I would say. Now it's about $400 per batch. And the, the, the basket is remaining the same. So did it help us the raise of 
you know, interest rates. Well, to a certain extent, it, extent it might stop what was going on, but it definitely doesn't doesn't help us with inflation to the extent it should. I think. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that example of the meat. Maybe that particular item has seen a huge inflation, and many other items have have seen uh, a lot of inflationary pressure. But some prices have come down. So <laughs> I don't spend a lot of steel. time, but <laughs> I remember paying. Eight dollars for for a dozen of eggs, and now they're back down to a much more reasonable level. So some items um, have experienced very high volatility and not come back, like uh, like beef, and, and some other items could have cycled back, like eggs. Um, but the the interest rates do fight inflation in general, and the the problem is Fed ha, has only one lever to pull. They don't have exactly control, uh, control mechanisms. They do what they can. And uh, it takes a long time for these high interest rates to propagate through the economy and they impact different parts of the economy differently. So uh, let's talk a little bit about new deals. So like you mentioned, we're very, you know, it's very quiet right now. We're sitting in 2023 uh, doing very, very few deals. It's a lot, lot slower than 22. And I just came from a conference where uh, one of the speakers is a um, national um, originator for commercial loans does a lot of multifamily loans and other commercial deals and he acknowledged that the volume is down 60 to 70 percent from last year it's a very significant drop in the transaction volume the refinancings are down to only critical refinancings where you have to refinance nobody was going to refinance to try to take the money out it's an impossible situation the rates are way way higher now than uh, a couple of years ago so refinancing business is gone on the new purchase money loan, the leverage is low, and uh, the underwriting credit underwriting is just significantly hot tighter. So in this environment, the only way you want to transact to buy, if you get a superb deal, you have to get a great deal. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then the sellers on the other side, if you don't have to sell at a steep discount, why would you sell? That's why it's kind of like bid and ask widely spread. So what are your thoughts? When are we going to start seeing some more transactions happening? Um, are sellers going to start capitulating from the pressure of the high interest rates where they can't service the debt? They got to sell or they're going to lose the property to a bank. And then some banks are cooperating and some banks are playing the game called extend and pretend. So we're going to see a lot of problems probably in the economy in the upcoming you know, 12 plus months with these high interest rates, again, as I mentioned, maturities cliff, um, variable rate, uh, cap uh, rate expirations. So what do you think? Is it going to force a lot of sellers to start capitulating because they can't deal with the debt problem? What do you think? And you can do a really good job operatingly, but if you got debt that's squeezing you too hard, uh, you, you can't fix the operating issues fast enough. The interest rates have gone up so much that that pressure is way faster than you can raise rents, right? You're right, absolutely right. I think I think we're going to see a lot of opportunities next year because basically there is nothing you can do. If there, you don't have enough NOI and your debt service is increasing and maturity cliff is there, you cannot refinance, we should see some opportunities here and there. But on the other hand, I believe that if people sitting... I just got back from a conference from the left, left field investors in, in, in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, out of 100 people, there were like maybe 80 investors. People are sitting on the money and they don't know where to deploy them because they don't see enough juice in those deals. But as long as those deals are going to hit the market, uh, there's going to be some competition who's going to take the sweet part of it. 
that's going to you know put some upward pressure on those prices. So there's still going to be some competition. Of course, it's going to be a little lower than it would be on the more healthy market. But still, I don't think it's going to be very, very bottom because a lot of people are sitting on the money and they want to like grab those things. And um, the advantage would be would belong to the structures who have the better connections with existing sponsors, who had a chance of building long-term relationships and who can basically take it before the deal hits the market. That's the first kind of point. The second point uh, is I've seen, not many, but I've seen a couple examples where the sponsors were smart enough and they raised money with uh, some equity reserves. So they raised like 2 million more than they needed. And they convinced investors, they convinced their code GPs that it's the that, that, that the strategy they want to utilize. And now I see these people surviving. That actually helps them to sell the property even in an existing environment, having this uh, the, the, the cash cushion, I would say, because they basically marketed the way that, hey, no worries, you're gonna have enough money to serve the debt, even if this, you know, the floating rate is gonna you know keep you this level for the next year. So you're good. And uh, people are buying it. On the other hand, I mean, let's think about it a little differently. If the project is pretty strong, strong enough, and it generates the nice cash flow, and there is a value for add, there is a time, there's space for add value. Let's assume that you're happy with buying it with a high interest rate. You're going to get zero, or maybe you're going to get even negative cash distributions for the first year or two. But if you believe that the project is good enough with a good allocation, with strong market, with strong manager in place, and you believe that the cap rates are going to compress back within two, three years, especially after elections are going to take place, the presidential one, I mean, they're going to normally they, everything is kind of settled afterwards. Some buyers are thinking about it this way. Let me buy it now with a negative cash and I have enough equity reserves, but in the future, since the cap rates are going to significantly compress, I will recover and I will have a big capital gain on the project because the project is there. It's not like a you know uh, poor C class somewhere where you struggle every day with your tenants. The other sample that I saw is um, I have a good friend in in California. They run a big multifamily fund. They have like about one hundred ten thousand uh, doors under management. And I reached him out and said, how do you behave these days? He says, we're on cash. We don't borrow money at all. We have enough money. We have enough cash. So we just buy everything using the equity. Yeah, we know that we deliver for this period of time a little low returns for those equity holders because we don't have the leverage. But the equity holders are happy with that since the projects we're buying are they're kind of strong first. Second, we trade a good, we bargain a good price. And the third, we're going to refinance them when the market is going to be healthy. Since we're buying it for the horizon of five, six years, we're going to be better off doing it this way right now. So it all depends on the way you look at it. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that perspective. And that's exactly the way to buy. You either buy with low leverage or you buy with no leverage if you can. Right? Not everyone can buy without leverage. You, you <laughs> Sitting on that much cash is actually... Exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. And, and those people who have bought with large cash reserves, that was great, you know, hindsight. Um and then folks that are sitting on cash and can borrow with low leverage can uh, buy deep. I mean, the, the, the term for this is exactly. buy deep. You have to get a great discount. If you don't get a great discount, why buy today? There's absolutely no reason. And um, yeah, most of these investments, multi-year time horizon. And there's a good old um, rule, buy properties when the interest rates are high. 
and then refinance and sell them when the interest rates are low. That's a gen that's a general theory that has worked for a long, long time. The assumption here is the high interest rates will force go down. Prices down, yes, and then you can yeah. buy deep. That's that's the whole idea. So we're on the same page. Misha, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience. Um, oh. And uh, thank you. Hey, folks, wanted to reach out. Is that a good way to reach out? Say hello. Uh, they can certainly do it through uh, through us through Temple. Uh, but what, what's the best way to uh, get a hold of you? If whatever you, you feel comfortable sharing, uh, how, how? Yeah, yeah. Just just, just shoot, shoot 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 me an email. Uh, it's going to be m d pritzker at templefunding .com. M, like Mary D, like Dora, Pritzker, P-R-I-T-S-K-E-R, at templefunding.com. So more Thank than welcome. Please reach out. We're happy to talk. And uh, we also are issuing a little series of videos about the underwriting process. So welcome to watch them too. Thank you kindly for sharing. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.